Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2 tonight. Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17. We've been working our way now through the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, and we have seen in chapter 1 that God makes all things of nothing. He makes the heavens and the earth and all things visible and invisible. And on the sixth day, he makes man in his own image as his own representative on the earth. As we turn to Genesis 2 at verse 4, we get a second look at creation. Now, some have uh, wanted to nitpick and imagined that there were lots of creation accounts running around the ancient world and that the writer of the book of the Bible couldn't decide which one was true and mashed them both together, irregardless of whether they're in uh, agreeance. Uh, and we're just supposed to work all that out however the best we can. But that isn't the case at all. Genesis 1 is about God's creation of all things. It's the cosmic perspective, the, the heavens, the earth, the sun, moon, and stars, all of it. And all brought to completion. Genesis 2 at verse 4 starts a second chapter in the book of Genesis. The chapter heading at verse 4 tells you that. We'll talk about that in a moment. And what you see now is a focus on the creation of humanity. And in particular, what life was like in relationship with God before the fall. And that's the main thing we want to consider tonight. What was it like to be in relationship with God before the fall? And we need to understand that if we're going to understand what God made us for and redeems us to and how it's even better to be in Christ now. And so let me invite you to consider God's covenant relationship with mankind in Adam, beginning at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Hear now the word of God. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is 
the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east out of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father, we ask that you would be our teacher tonight. We pray that you would help us to understand things the way that you do. I ask that you would grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. And we ask, O Lord, that you would show us Jesus. And help our souls find their delight in him. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What was a relationship with God like in the garden before sin entered the world? It was a relationship of an abundance of blessing. And some wonderful responsibilities with one particular prohibition. It was, in other words, a covenant relationship. Uh, What do I mean by covenant relationship? Uh, Maybe this story will help in some ways. This is from a a journal of missionaries uh, called Before We Kill and Eat You. This was the first time to be surrounded by cannibals, angry cannibals, this missionary writes, and God delivered us. See, what had happened is five missionaries were surrounded by natives with cutlasses and spears threatening to kill them. And a native boy had disappeared, and the cannibals had assumed, because this was likely what they would have done, they assumed that the missionaries had eaten the boy. And uh, so, of course, they were angry, and the missionaries were being blamed. And over the course of the day, they protested and said, we're innocent, we didn't do this. And that evening, King Tho and his elders returned, begging the forgiveness of the missionaries, asking them to overlook what they had done in anger, threatening them, because the child had returned on his own, safe and sound. And after the apology, the throat of a white bird was cut. The blood was sprinkled first on the missionaries and then on the natives, And the chief declared that a blood covenant had been made between the two parties. Never would they shed the blood of the missionaries and never would the missionaries shed the blood of the natives. And all future generations were bound on both sides by the terms of this covenant. They were now in a committed, binding relationship with mutual blessings and responsibilities. Life, blessing, responsibility, don't kill the other side. And it had life and death consequences. That's a covenant. 
You, you might recognize the terms of that kind of covenant in the marriage ceremony. Now, in our day, people will get together and they'll uh, maybe have a marriage and wedding ceremony and they'll take a vow. And there, there are people who take a vow like this. I promise to remain your faithful husband as long as our love shall last. Okay, there's a great escape hatch there, isn't there? Love dies, I'm out. I have that freedom. That's all I vowed. But that's not the historic vow of marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship, and the historic vow goes something like this. I I promise and covenant between God and these witnesses that I will be your loving and faithful husband, your loving and faithful wife, in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, in riches and in poverty, as long as we both shall live. Okay? You bankrupt us, I'll be here tomorrow. You get sick, and I have to nurse you. I will be here tomorrow. I have much sorrow in my heart because of the way life is going with you. I will be here tomorrow because what you vow in marriage is not that I love you now. I mean, everybody knows you love each other now. You stand there, and you're smiling, and you're giggling, and we're all excited for you, and you're declaring your love now. Well, of course you're declaring your love now. But in the marriage vow, you're declaring your determination to love them tomorrow and the day after. Okay? It's a binding relationship, life and death consequences. It's till death do us part, as long as we both shall live. And there are obvious blessings and responsibilities on the other side, which you grow into. That's what a covenant is. That's the kind of relationship God established with humanity In Adam, there are blessings, we'll look at those. There were responsibilities, we'll look at those. There were life and death consequences, and we'll consider that and how it's better to be in Christ than to be in Adam. So let me me invite you to consider this special relationship God established, which some have called the covenant of works. Genesis chapter 2 Uh, Go back and and trace through eight or nine of these blessings. God seems to go out of his way to pile them up. He offers to Adam a life of unending delight and happiness with God in a world that God created for our enjoyment and blessing. Verse 2, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made them. This, as I said, is a second creation account, but focusing on something different. This is a chapter heading in the book of Genesis. If you were to flip over to chapter 5, you'd see another chapter heading that looks very similar. This is the book of the generations of Adam, chapter 5, verse 1. If you go to chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. There are 10 of these in the book of Genesis. They're the actual chapter headings for 10 sections In the book of Genesis. So you're in a new section here going from the comprehensive and cosmic creation to man in relationship with God. And it's filled with blessings. Now at verses 4 to 6, there is, you know, some challenge in understanding what all is happening here. There was no bush of the field yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had yet to cause it to rain on the earth, but there was a mist going up, evidently the early creation. 
was, was watered uh, by uh, subterranean waters and floods and that kind of thing, as opposed to rain falling from the ground. And then at verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. The first blessing I want you to see is that God gave Adam a body. Very simple, but easy to overlook. But don't overlook how great a thing it is to be an embodied soul in a physical place that is that you are designed to live in and function in and enjoy. You were made to be at home in the earthiness of a planet called Earth. You were made and given a body to, to run and leap and play and to find joy in creation in a body. This is an, an enormous blessing. And sometimes I say that because sometimes Christians think that the best thing that could happen to them is that they would just get out of this body and go to some heaven they imagine is an disembodied state. That was one of the reasons we think that way sometimes is because we find our body to be the instrument of frustration in our life. It, it is in a fallen world, an instrument of sin. But the body was created good, and it's a good thing to have a body. And our ultimate hope is not that your soul gets to go be with God and float on clouds with halos, but that you will have a soul made perfect forever, reunited to a resurrected body, joined together forever in a new heavens and a new earth. It's a glorious thing, friends. So God gave us a body. We might also add uh, that our body was fashioned not from the apes or the chimpanzees, but from something far more humble, from the very dust of the earth. He was not made from the animals but was made from the very dust, as the animals themselves also were. Go back to Genesis 1. Now, he got a body, but he also got a soul. God breathed into him, it says, the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You are an embodied soul. And this is a good thing too, friends. And we might be reminded here again that, that it says then, that that's when we became a living being. It wasn't until God breathed into us the breath of life that, that man became a living being. In other words, this text, and that's the same phrase, living being, nothing exactly special about it, that's the same phrase used to speak of the animals when they became living beings. In other words, it's not that God took some ape or chimpanzee or some other non-human bipedal creature that he had previously made that existed on the earth and then chose out a special one to breathe life into that one and make it a living being because Adam didn't become a living being until God breathed into him the breath of life. But we know that the animals were already called living beings. You wouldn't take something that was already called a living being, breathe into it the breath of life and say that it has now become a living being. And so you see again, I mean, Genesis says, God created us of the dust of the earth, breathed life into us when we became living souls. And 
we see a third blessing in Genesis. We see that God placed Adam in a garden filled with amazing beauty. Notice verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. That's amazing, friends. You might have thought, Adam... A living soul made by his creator with the privilege of knowing God himself on the earth. We know that Genesis 3, God made a practice of walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You might have thought that the only thing that would capture Adam's attention and affections that he would ever call beautiful and pleasing to the eye would be God himself. And yet God made trees that were beautiful just to look at. To enjoy, as if to say, Father and Son, let's walk in the garden and let's marvel at the world that I have made and let's enjoy it. That's what God did. I'll make beautiful trees and we'll enjoy them together. We'll climb them. We'll build tree houses. It's a wonderful thing, friends. And then he says that at the end of verse 9, that God had brought them into being. They were pleasant to the sight. And they were good for food, that that there was fruit bearing trees here that that brought forth nourishing and enjoyable food. And Adam was given a body capable of enjoying it. You have to deal with a God who thought of the physical pleasures of eating good food. You know, he could have, to nourish you, he could have thought of something that was kind of gray, mushy, served cold three meals a day, but it had all the vitamins and all the nutrients and all the fats and proteins and good carbs and fiber and everything else you needed to eat. And he could have left taste buds out of your mouth and said, look, just three square a day, eat this stuff. It's not very good. Good, but it'll make you healthy and strong. And instead he made ice cream. And he made deep dish double cheese pizza. And he thought of thin mint cookies that the Girl Scouts would one day bring to our door. God gave you the taste buds that just burst with excitement at the tangy sweetness of a perfectly ripe orange. And he designed you to enjoy the pleasure of that experience. You have to deal with a God who gave you the taste buds and the the olfactory nerves so you could smell and all all the nerve endings of your body that are concentrated in certain places in your body that bring about enjoyable sensations. This is God's idea. Do not imagine that the pleasures of this world are the devil's idea. Has he aimed to corrupt them? Has he aimed to use them for a bad use? Have we done the same? Of course, but they're God's because God is good. So he gave us the good food as well. And then he put in that garden another blessing. The tree, verse 10, end of verse 9, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll get back to that in a moment. But there was a tree here called the tree of life. And he could have eaten of that tree. And 
I believe based on Genesis 3, when God kicks him out of the garden so he can't eat of the tree of life, that, that this was a tree designed sacramentally to picture sustained life in the presence of God. And had he eaten and kept being obedient as he ate, he would have kept on living. But we'll get back to that idea in a moment. But there are more blessings here, friends, because in verses 10 through 14, notice that Adam was placed in a world filled with natural resources. It, it goes on at length. It's kind of surprising, I think. Genesis chapter 2, and there is this long paragraph that describes the geographic location of the Garden of Eden, which is now lost to us since the flood. We know where some of these rivers are. We can't even be sure that the rivers we call the Tigris and the Euphrates are where they once were before the flood. Two of these rivers, we don't know what they are or where they were, but there was a river that flowed out of Eden and it watered the garden and then it split into four rivers. And by the way, that word Eden there means luxury or delight. And it was a garden in Eden. There was a place called luxury, delight. And God built a garden or grew a garden, established it there for their benefit. And it was filled with water, rivers, bringing an abundance of water. Now, here in the West, where you just turn a tap on and get clean and sanitized water that doesn't injure you and cause you stomach ailments, we take it for granted. But in much of the world, even today, in certain places, water is a scarce and extremely valuable commodity. And the Israelites, who walked for 40 years in the desert because they had rebelled against God before they could cross a river and get into the promised land, all the more would have hearing these words, would have, had a, would have had a sense of, oh, oh, to be back in Eden, to quench my thirst on the river that was in the garden. What did we abandon when we turned our back on God? It would have struck them, I think, how generous God had been, and then he'd given them gold and these other precious stones, as it des- describes them. Certainly, they were fabulously wealthy and rich and that they had in front of them the things to stimulate their mind and and to work with, to enjoy the creative expressions of humanity made in the image of God. All these beautiful jewels and things are there. All these plus, we'll see next week, Eve is brought to Adam in the garden. God gives him a a loving companion and lifelong friend with which to share the experience of the delights of the father's house. And on top of giving Eve, he gives them what other blessing? He gives them himself. God in the garden. God in relationship. God speaking to them, telling them, how to live God face to face with Adam as a friend. And that is not, friends, to be overlooked. God in the garden. All these things. Adam on the day he woke up, whenever that was, would have said as he looked around, my father loves me. And he is open-handed, generous, and liberal with his gifts. Look at the place he's given to me. This is what Adam would have said. What a wonderful God you are. And Adam would have had his happiness in the enjoyment of a world that God had made in a right 
and loving relationship with the God who made him in it. That's what he had, friends. And that, by the way, before we move on to the responsibilities he had, that's a reminder to us, friends, that he had the enjoyment of good circumstances in a way that you and I don't experience. Even as we taste some of the enjoyable benefits of this life, and I don't doubt that that our taste buds have probably been marred in some way by the fall. Our brains have been marred by the fall. We don't experience the fullness the way that Adam did, and the creation itself has been subject to decay, Paul says in Romans. And yet we still enjoy great blessings. But one thing Adam would have never experienced was the kind of circumstances that would have contributed to his unhappiness. There would have been no taste of or hint of depression in the garden based on circumstances. We don't experience that anymore. But it is also a reminder, friends, that happy circumstances won't make you obedient. They didn't make Adam obedient. He had the best of the best. And we delude ourselves when we think, oh, Lord, if you would just do this, then I would be content in you and happy in you and I would be joyful in you. We need something more than just good circumstances for that, friends. But so here you have, you have Adam. Adam in his father's wondrous world, enjoying all these blessings and benefits. And then God says to them, Adam and Eve, I've got responsibilities for you. There are four positive responsibilities. We've seen some of them. We'll see more. So we'll briefly cover them. And then one particular uh, exacting uh, responsibility that has a negative prohibition with it. But they had, they had things to do in the garden. It wasn't just to play all the time in the world that God had made. But they were also to uh, engage in what some have called creation ordinances or creation mandates. Uh, things that God had mandated for them to do as the responsible representatives of God on the earth. What were they to do? Well, we've already seen in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, that they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay? And I realize some of you know that Melinda and I have six kids, and so perhaps you imagined that Melinda and I have sort of appropriated that commandment all to ourselves. And I assure you that we have not. Others think we're crazy and nuts to have that many children, and I can tell you the Lord designed our family. But it is a wonderful thing. That God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why did he do that? He wasn't just trying to get Adam and Eve to have children for the enjoyment of having children. What was God doing? He was saying, you are my representatives on the earth and I want you to create, you know, under my sovereignty, more representatives of me and fill the earth with them and govern and rule the earth. That's what God was doing. And many people today think, frankly, that this commandment has been fulfilled or that it's no longer appropriate. It shouldn't be a pattern of life for us. There are many people today, of course, who would reject Genesis outright, but who would say it's a terrible thing to fill the earth with people. We're already over full. And their concerns, in some ways, about how, how does everybody get fed are appropriate, and we ought to ask that question. But it's not the problem of filling the earth with people 
that causes there to be problems. Um, I don't know how often you read it. You know, lately it seems like everywhere you turn, there's articles talking about the overpopulation of the world and what a terrible thing it is. But but if you were to line up all people in military formation, standing two feet from one another in every direction, we couldn't last long in that formation, you could put all of humanity in the city of Jacksonville, Florida. You could give everybody in the entire world a 1,200 square foot house in the state of Texas. You'd have to farm everywhere else. Do the math, friends. We'll all fit. The issue is not we have too many people on the earth. Uh, 46% of the world is still wilderness. The most densely populated state in our nation is New Jersey. And 66% of it is undeveloped. Anyway, what's my point? It's not outdated. It's not irresponsible. God wants to multiply image bearers, and that was the responsibility of Adam and Eve back in the garden. But there was also this. They were, of course, to get married. Chapter 2, verse 18, we'll get there. God made Eve for Adam. It was not good that he should be alone, and they were to live life together in the intimacy of the community of marriage. That also was important. We weren't designed to be single, solitary individuals all alone and on our own without the intimate community of family life. And he gave them the ordinance of labor. He gave them work to do. Uh, again, Genesis one twenty eight: be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We looked at that. He, he, Adam had a mandate to work and work was good and um, God had placed him in a garden to be its keeper. He was the original park ranger. What a, what a fun job he had. And he was as well to rest. We saw that last week in Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Following God's own pattern of six days of work and one day of ceasing his creative work. So we are and we're designed to follow that same kind of pattern because God says, I want you to rest. I want you to cease your working and take a break. My people will have seven and a half weeks of vacation every year because I am not a cruel taskmaster. These were all things that they were to do. But notice as we finish, notice the specific negative prohibition that God had given to them at verses 16 and 17. What was life like? God at verse 15 put him uh, in the Garden of Eden depending upon your translation, to work it and to keep it. Two words that come from abad and shamar, which means to serve and obey. They were to serve and obey God in the garden. And specifically, God said, you can eat of every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God offered Adam... Life as a son in the father's house, a life of unending delight with this requirement, obey me, be a true son under your father's roof. Oh, Adam, will you 
live with me according to my wisdom and not your own? Will you honor me and respect me and obey me in my house? Do so, God said to him. And if you do not obey me, if you eat from the tree I forbid you to eat, then dying, you will die, he says. You will certainly die. So Adam was granted freedom to eat of any tree. Even from the tree of life he could have eaten. But he was prohibited from eating of this one tree and no... Uh, Nothing in the Bible suggests that it was an apple tree or that there was something inherently poisonous about the fruit of the tree itself. But rather, it was a test of obedience to God and disobedience would bring death by God's design and plan. Just as continued obedience would mean the continuation of the life that he had. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die, God said. And what's promised there, it's inferred, is that continued life would have been had by his personal and perfect obedience. So you've got this divinely established relationship with life and death consequences, blessings and responsibilities. And if Adam is faithful, he made it the tree of life and have fellowship with God. And if he is unfaithful, he will surely die. Die. That's why some people call this the covenant of works. Because by the covenant, because by the work of obedience, he would continue to have life. Others have called this a covenant of life, because what was promised to him was the continuance of life. But notice, friends, that there was no grace involved in this relationship. God was generous, he was abundant in his good gifts, no doubt. But it wasn't a gracious relationship. I say that because there was no sin to overcome. There was no rebellion that needed to be forgiven and pardoned. You can, some will want to define grace as mere generosity that you don't deserve. And I understand that. None of this did Adam deserve. <clears throat> but the other way to look at grace is grace is God's unmerited favor in the face of demerit. And there was no demerit to overcome. And so it wasn't, strictly speaking, A gracious relationship, not in the way that we have after the fall that God had promised. And so it was a a test. Will you submit to my authority in all things? Will you trust me? Simply because I am the creator and you are the creature and I am your father and you are my son. And past the test, we may assume at least my own view is that this would have been a, a there would have been a probationary period on the test. A little bit speculative. In God's eternal and everlasting plan, he sovereignly ordained the fall that he might bring about better things in Christ. Christ restores us to something better than the Garden of Eden. But it's also hard to see that this test would have gone on into eternity as they had children and grandchildren and were constantly saying, now don't get near that tree and eat that fruit. Okay, anyway... Adam, um, Adam was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that mean? There's been plenty of debates in the history of the church on the meaning of that. My own view is that it means this. That Adam in the garden uh, had the experiential knowledge of good. But he was warned about evil. And he had a theoretical, therefore, theoretical knowledge of evil. 
he, he was experientially good. It was very good when God made him. He was unfallen. Yet, he had the theoretical knowledge of evil. If you rebel, if you do evil, then there will be miserable consequences. And after the fall, that got reversed. And Adam ate and tasted rebellion and knows the experience of evil, as you know in your own heart. And yet, in a sense, we've lost the taste of pure goodness. But in any case, uh, here is Adam standing before God, and he is standing there, friends, as the Bible says, and we'll close with this idea. He is standing there not just as a single individual private person, but he is the public head of all humanity, representing all humanity before God in the garden. And if Adam is unfaithful, all of humanity in Adam will be plunged into sin and misery. And that is exactly what happened. And we are all by nature tied to Adam. We are his children and we all fell in him and with him as he represented us in the garden. And what we need, friends, is a new representative head before God in a gracious covenant. And that is what we are given in Christ. Christ has come, the last Adam, to do what the first Adam failed to do and to undo what Adam brought upon us. And so whereas Adam brought us death, Christ dies our death to bring us life. And this is the beauty, friends, of what the Bible um, describes as the covenant of grace. We are all standing before God, hooked to the belt of of one of two men. Either you are hooked to the belt of Adam, and you are under the umbrella of Adam, and what he did has brought misery to you. Or you are by God's grace switched and transferred and hooked through faith in Christ and by God's grace hooked to the belt of Christ, and you are the, under the umbrella of Christ, and all the blessings and benefits of Christ are yours. And so, friends, we ask the question, why is salvation by works wrong theologically? Because our salvation is by Christ's work, by his obedience. Why, friends, and it is, Why is it an offense to God to say, you know what? I don't really need Jesus. I will just obey you. And surely that will be enough and I will save myself by my own obedience. Because then what you are saying is that Christ's obedience was unnecessary. And that the Father sent his Son to die a horrible death upon a cross. For no reason at all. Because after all, you're just fine all by yourself. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that, friends. You need a Savior, a new covenant head who loved you and gave himself for you to rescue you. So all the blessings of God unendingly rest on the obedience of the last Adam. The covenant breaking of the first man, Adam, is covered by the covenant keeping of the last man, Jesus. 
And God is pleased with him and accepts all who are in him by faith. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and we praise you and we thank you for Jesus, our Savior. And I pray that you would transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And you would help us to know the delights of belonging to your family. In your name I pray, amen.